Story number 24, For Want of Oats. According to Bill, then personnel manager of the Boston Symphony Orchestra, it all started with our pony named Hurricane. Our family of six arrived one Sunday afternoon, June 24, 1973, at our summer home in Stockbridge, Mass., near Lenox, with horse trailer in tow. The only problem was that Hurricane would not get out of the trailer, and we had no oats to coax him out. We drove horse trailer in tow to both Kimball Stables and Aspinwall Stables nearby, but neither would loan, sell us, or in any way share with us even a handful of oats. Feeling rather dejected as we were driving home, we passed a promising-looking barn. No one was at the barn, so we drove down a long driveway to a large, gracious home with a spectacular view of the Berkshires. A dapper gentleman answered the door. He was happy to give us a bucket of oats and even invite us in for a cup of tea. As luck would have it, this was the home of Reverend Anson Phelps Stokes III, Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Boston. Our Berkshire homes were less than a half mile apart and our two families became good friends our daughter Ellen and their daughter Mary frequently rode their horses together. Todd Perry, general manager of the BSO, happened to be in Reverend Stokes' congregation, heard the hurricane story. Although the Moyers didn't know it at the time, Reverend Stokes and his wife Hopi, H-O-P-I-E, so spelled to differentiate her from the Indian tribe, had visited Holy Trinity School in Port-au-Prince, a mission of the Sisters of St. Margaret, in turn a mission of the Episcopal Diocese in Boston, and returned to the U.S. very enthusiastic about the work being done in Haiti. One can only assume that the subject of how to help the fledgling Haitian orchestra came up between these two men who must have also included Bill Moyer's name in their discussion. Thus the seeds were sown for a connection between Bill Moyer, the Boston Symphony Orchestra, and l'Orchestre Philharmonique Saint-Rité in Haiti. Soon after the hurricane incident and back in Boston, a nun appeared at the stage door of Symphony Hall wanting to see Bill. The stage door attendant called up to Bill's office. Hello, Bill. There's someone here at the stage door to see you, and he continued whispering, it's a nun. Oh, said Bill, who had never been visited by a nun before. That sounded interesting, so he replied, well, send her up. According to Bill, in flowed a nun in her long robe and starched white wimple that quivered whenever she spoke. 
My name is Sister Anne Marie of the Sisters of St. Margaret, an Episcopal order right here in Boston. She continued nonstop to explain, We have a mission in Haiti and a small but growing orchestra, and I have come to find out what you and the Boston Symphony Orchestra can do for us. This took Bill back a bit, since he was, as personnel manager of the BSO, concerned more with getting the 105 musicians on stage at the right time and in the right place. This was intriguing. He replied, There's probably quite a bit we can do for you, providing music, instruments perhaps, reeds and strings for instruments, perhaps even musical instruction. But... What can you do for us? Sister Anne-Marie, never at a loss for ideas or words, responded, We have beautiful weather in Haiti, especially in February, and perhaps we could provide a week of respite for some of your players in exchange for a few hours of instruction for our musicians. Not only did she have an orchestra, Sister Anne-Marie had raised the money to bring that orchestra, numbering maybe 30 at that time, to the United States to play at St. Paul's Cathedral in Boston at the celebration of the 100th anniversary of her order, the Society of St. Margaret, the very next evening, Sunday, September 13, 1973. Never one to rest on her laurels, she had also booked 14 engagements in eight different cities over a 22-day period. Perhaps you and your wife can attend our concert tomorrow evening and we can talk later. So, Bill and I had the opportunity to hear the Infant Holy Trinity Philharmonic Orchestra along with the English Handbell Choir of St. Vincent's School in concert at the Church of the Advent in Boston, September 16, 1973. We were hooked. The sound was pretty raw, but the orchestra looked beautiful in their starched white shirts, black pants or skirts, and green sashes. Quite impressed with that September concert in Boston, Bill became determined to help develop L'Orchestre Philharmonique Saint-Trinité, or OPST. The following March of 1974, Bill and I, our 17-year-old son Fred, an aspiring pianist who had just won the BSO Young Artists Competition, and our daughter Annie, a violin student, traveled to Haiti to visit Holy Trinity School. Bill coached the brass section and helped reorganize the library. I coached some piano students. Annie played in the orchestra and subsequently attended Holy Trinity Music Camp at Leogan for two summers, and Fred performed the Bach F minor piano concerto with the orchestra, conducted by Hector Lomini, a postal clerk and sometime trumpet player. This was the first of many such collaborations between L'Orchestre Philharmonique 
Saint-Trinité and Fred, who is now a well-established concert artist. During their furlough in August of 1974, Sister Anne-Marie and Sister Marjorie Raphael spent four days with Bishop and Mrs. Anson Stokes at their country home in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, had meetings with Bill and other BSO members and made plans for future collaborations. Roger Voisin, principal trumpeter, and his wife Martha agreed to go to Haiti for two weeks that December where he would teach trumpet and coach chamber music. That was just a beginning. With Bill's ongoing endorsement and encouragement, in addition to their introduction to the charismatic Sister Anne Marie, several other BSO members traveled to Haiti during their orchestra time off to teach and perform. These included Carol Proctor, cellist, Max Hobart, violinist, and Anne Hobson, pilot, harpist, who made a gift of a fine harp to the orchestra. The visiting BSO musicians always returned refreshed and excited about the students they had worked with at Holy Trinity. Bill made many other trips, taking the family along on some occasions. In February 1976, Bill extended an invitation to the OPST to be guests of the BSO for a month at Tanglewood. The students would receive free private lessons and sectional coaching from BSO members and could attend BSO rehearsals and concerts gratis. Holy Trinity School would be responsible for transportation, food, and lodging. Sister Anne-Marie got busy and raised $60,000 and found a Bible school in Lenox unoccupied in the summer to house the group. With some encouragement from the American Embassy, American Airlines donated 53 round-trip airline tickets to fly the orchestra to the U.S. and back. The invitation to the OPST to play at Tanglewood on Parade was not part of the original plan. It was an added bonus offered to the orchestra when the BSO and Berkshire administrators observed the Haitian students' capacity for hard work and their level of achievement. OPST played much better than Bill's BSO colleagues had imagined. This added even more of a triumphant aspect to the tour. The orchestra flew home from Kennedy Airport on September 7, 1976, with $42,500, which was earmarked for the construction of a new music building, including a performance hall. En route to Haiti, they played a series of concerts along the East Coast. What a powerhouse was Sister Anne-Marie. In 1984, she and Bill partnered in a second one-month residency for the orchestra at Tanglewood. Several of the top string players, some of whom had been the younger ones on the 1976 trip, were able to return on scholarship as Berkshire Music Center students for several subsequent summers. 
Bill's long-standing belief in the value of Holy Trinity's music program and his loyal support was a pivotal factor in the development of OPST. Sister Anne-Marie, using a letter of recommendation from Bill, managed to increase their dockside concert fee from $100 to $1,000. He was surely one of the best friends Holy Trinity could ever have. He facilitated many other collaborations between professional musicians and the Haitian students and was a tireless fundraiser for the school. He organized an early music ensemble concert series at St. Margaret's Convent in Boston to attract new donors to the school. When Sister Anne-Marie needed an architect, Bill brought in his childhood best friend, Frederick Christiansen, now a well-regarded Minnesota school architect who designed the new music school and went to Haiti to help supervise its construction, never charging a cent for his services. Now, today, the school lies in rubble, the result of the devastating earthquake of 2011. Underneath this rubble are the many instruments donated by BSO members, the trombone Bill gave to the orchestra, as well as the harp donated by Ann Hobson Pilot. But the spirit of that indomitable group has produced vigorous efforts to rebuild. Written 2012. Story number 25, BSO Stories. When Bill joined the Boston Symphony Orchestra in the fall of 1952, there began a relationship full of humor, heart, and camaraderie that lasted until he retired in 1987. From the start, he came home from rehearsals and concerts with wonderful tales of the goings-on among the members, the clever commentaries they made on every conceivable subject, the music itself, the soloists, the chairs, the temperature of the hall, but most importantly, the conductor. If the conductor was not the enemy, he, she was certainly an opponent of sorts. That leads me, of course, to many BSO stories that have become legends in our family. Over the 35 years Bill was in the orchestra, he would come home after a rehearsal or concert with wonderful yarns about the 110 or so characters that comprised the BSO roster. I would jot down the punchline of these stories as mnemonics and into a notebook or, if that wasn't close by, on a napkin, the back of a grocery list, or whatever was handy. All these I stuffed into a file folder called BSO Jokes. I am now going to pull from that folder some of those notes and try to recreate some of the stories behind them. My telling will not be nearly so good as Bill's, 
but I do think they should be preserved for posterity in some way. Fortunately, or unfortunately, most of the characters are dead, so I don't need to protect their identities. Note, I will not repeat any of the stories that son Fred recorded and produced so beautifully on a CD back in 2003 entitled BSO Stories. I'm reporting these straight out of the folder. Pick up one slip of paper, and if I remember the story, I'll tell it. So this is a mishmash, not in any particular order. Matthew Ruggiero, BSO 3rd Bassoonist. Matt was an interesting, even brilliant person. Bill's position before and after rehearsals and concerts beside the door through which the orchestra members entered or left the stage gave him a perfect vantage point for hearing the mumblings of the orchestra members as they left the stage. Matt's were always choice. When Ralph Kirschbaum, cellist, performed with the orchestra, he was much admired by the players for his restraint and perfection of intonation and dedication to the composer's intentions. After a performance of Dvorak's Cello Concerto in Symphony Hall, the orchestra came off stage and Bill heard Matt mumble, he is a fantastic performer and you don't have to mop up when he is finished. This was actually a dig at Yo-Yo Ma, frequent guest soloist with the BSO who was very emotional in his performing. In the tuning room before rehearsals and concerts, there was a great deal of activity, card games, Belot, a French origin, was a favorite, political debates, discussions about music and instruments. On January 23, 1978, a member was delivering a heated monologue about Nixon's trip to China. It's political perversion, he orated. Matt commented, I wasn't bothered at all by Nixon's trip to China. It was a trip back. George Zazowski, BSO first violinist, came into rehearsal at Tanglewood one morning. He had had his hair colored, and the results were somewhat bizarre. Matt commented, Have you seen George lately? He's prematurely orange. <laughs> Leo Baranek, acoustics pioneer and longtime chairman of the BSO Board of Overseers, and later of the Board of Trustees, became a little addled as the years went by. He opened up one meeting by stating, Ladies and gentlemen, our goals can be summarized in one word, common sense. <laughs> Leslie Martin, BSO member 1957 to 1987, was a 300-pound bassist whom the players dubbed Tiny, of course. 
He began to show severe signs of fatigue as he climbed the stairs from the tuning room to the stage of Symphony Hall. It was discovered that someone had been putting a handful of sand into the F-hole of his instrument each time he, or she, passed the fire bucket that stood on the way to the stage. This was discovered, but never was the culprit playing this nasty trick on Tiny. Just how the sand was removed from his double bass, we never knew. Gino Chaffee, BSO first clarinetist from 1950-1970, had a rather large ego. He was once heard to say, When I'm sick, I'm the best clarinetist in the world. When I'm well, Jesus Christ couldn't play better. William Steinberg, BSO music director from 1969 to 1972, was a rather acerbic man who was particularly difficult at orchestra auditions. These are regularly attended by an audition committee that includes players within the auditionees section, other orchestra members, and the conductor. After one audition he played, a violist, I think, Steinberg announced to the crestfallen player, I have heard them all, and you are the worst. Imagine carrying that comment with you the rest of your life. One might conclude that Mr. Steinberg had a streak of cruelty as well. On another occasion, after hearing a violin candidate, Steinberg remarked, I think I could enjoy that if only I knew what key it is in. When William Steinberg departed after only three years with the VSO, Matt Ruggiero commented, Maestro Steinberg is available for limited cancellations. <laughs> Paul Mellon, member of the house crew, was something of a genius savant. He loved music, especially Beethoven and Armando Guitala, third trumpet player with the orchestra, 1951 to 1979, but also principal trumpet with the Boston Pops. Paul had a recording of Al Hurt performing the Spanish bullfighting trumpet solo and also a tape of Mr. Gatala performing the same work with the Boston Pops. I play them at the same time, Paul told Bill. Oh, Mr. Gatala is a wonderful player. One day, the orchestra was rehearsing Mahler's first symphony, which has a big solo for third trumpet. Bill went to tell Paul about this and found him with the first balcony door to the hall propped open, listening bewitched to the rehearsal below. Oh, Bill, as orchestra personnel manager, had a wonderful relationship with all the staff and would take time to stop and chat with them. They called him Smiling Bill. Seiji Ozawa, BSO music director, 1973 to 2002, 
conducted the BSO for 29 years, the longest tenure of any of the BSO's conductors. He was known to study his conductor's score till the very last instant, flipping the pages as fast as he could before he was called to go on stage for a rehearsal or concert. He had a photographic memory. He was known also for arriving at Symphony Hall at the last possible moment before a concert or rehearsal. On one occasion, he was so late that Bill called a 10-minute intermission at the very beginning of recording session in hopes that Seiji would show up only a little bit late. Just the week before, Paul Cahayas, the orchestra's driver or chauffeur, if you will, had delivered Seiji to a concert just in the nick of time and had reported, I drove 70 miles an hour to get him here. At a recording session, Paul scolded Bill for calling an early intermission when he had delivered Seiji on the dot of 10.30. You mean I drove 80 miles an hour for nothing? Matt Ruggiero was heard to comment, wait till Paul finds out he can do 90 on the sidewalk. <laughs> Recording Sessions, October 3, 1977. During a recording session, Reiner Brock, the A&R, artists and repertoire man from Deutsche Grammophon, commented sagely, it is so nice whenever the weather is good, we can enjoy the science fiction area across the street from Symphony Hall. Sage's response was, Don't tell Bob Ripley, cellist, or Mary Lou Speaker, violinist. They are science fictionalists. He, of course, was talking about the Christian Science Mother Church just across Massachusetts Avenue from Symphony Hall. At recording sessions in Symphony Hall, some 30 rows of seats in the middle of the hall floor are removed and stowed temporarily in Symphony Hall's capacious basement so that the orchestra can play in the center of the auditorium, allowing the optimum sound quality. Music stands were taped to the floor to avoid any possible rattle or extraneous sound emanating from the metal stands. Orchestra members were provided with booties to wear on their feet. All kinds of measures were taken to assure the best and cleanest sound and the most economical use of the recording session time, which was measured not in hours or minutes, but in seconds. Bill, as orchestra personnel manager, was in charge of the clock. He told of a recording session when he apologized to the A&R man for the strictness of the clock. Perhaps Reiner again, he replied, Oh no, we like it. Deutsche Grammophon, the then current recording company for the BSO, is, of course, a German company. Generally, during a recording session, the orchestra records for 20 minutes or so, and then the conductor, the engineer, 
the ANR man, the personnel manager, Bill, and perhaps others retired to the engineering studio to listen and discuss the portion just recorded to determine if it is suitable for inclusion in the final version. In this case, during one of the intermissions, the conductor, Rostropovich, Sejo Zawa BSO music director, and Tom Mowry, the ANR man for Deutsche Grammophon, and Bill were listening in the control room. At a certain point in the music, the cello section has a glissando, which, as you may know, is, means a slide. Rostropovich called out, Stop, stop, should be more like slippery slidey. He whispered to something to Seiji, who chuckled. Seiji, though his English was poor, was nonetheless spicy and colorful, translated in a low voice, cunt. <laughs> Mishaps. The BSO, when Bill first arrived in 1952, went on many tours in the United States and abroad as well and appeared regularly in more local cities, including New York City, New Haven, Springfield, etc. One of the regular cities was Hartford, Connecticut. Bushnell Concert Hall had a rather high stage with wide steps that wrapped around the apron of the stage. On one occasion, the string holding the suspended cymbal in place broke, and the cymbal rolled down the steps, and going wow, 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 round and round on the last step, finally came to rest. The audience's reaction is not reported, whether it was applause and uproar of laughter or what but certainly everyone was taken completely by surprise. On another tour of the West Coast, Bruckner's Seventh Symphony was programmed. It involves a tam-tam. That is the big round gong-like metal disc that is suspended from a frame, the instrument that introduced the old J. Arthur Rank movies back in the 1940s. It makes one hell of a loud but totally distinct sound. There is no substitute for it. An additional percussionist had to be hired for this purpose, even though the score, in fact the whole program, called for him to play just one note. During the concert, the percussionist steadied the frame in preparation to play his one note. Somehow he lost his place in the music, and when the moment came for his one note, he did not come in. He blew it, and he never had a chance to display his talent. Matt Ruggiero conjectured that when he got home, his wife would open the door and ask, So, hon, how did it go? Oh, my what a heartbreak. Audience and others' requests. Bill, as orchestra personnel manager, occasionally had to deal with extremely difficult, sometimes very sensitive situations. At Tanglewood one summer, one of the guides complained to management that one of the violinists in the orchestra was chasing after her. 
The worst thing is, she reported, he smokes cigars, eats garlic, doesn't bathe, and smells terrible. Of course, Bill was asked to solve the problem. Bill found the offending violinist and reported the complaint. Sam, I think you ought to wear a deodorant and probably other admonitions. The problem solved itself. Sam died the next week. Boston Pops. During the annual pop season, May, June of every year, the base section could be counted on for a good display of humor. For example, one of the pop's standards was singing in the rain. For this selection, each bassist would have brought along an umbrella. At an appropriate moment in the song, the bass section en masse would open their umbrellas to the delight of the audience. Or, during I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas, a standard during Christmas pops, the bassists came with scarves, hats, gloves, etc. to put on during the song. The backstage crew would join the fun by scattering fake snowflakes from a position high above the stage, hidden by organ pipes, another staple audience pleaser. The leader of the bass insurrection, Fiedler called it, was John Barwicky a colorful guy who rode to Symphony Hall and around town on a little motor scooter. We were all sure the scooter would be the end of him, but it was not. He died a natural death in 2000 at the age of 90. Bill Ryan, BSO double bassist, was a troubled young man. One pop season back when the movie Star Wars was all the craze, he wanted to come to a pop's performance dressed as Darth Vader. Bill Moyer, that is, and others of the management thought the dark message conveyed by Darth Vader was not appropriate. Bill M. told Bill R., Bill, we can't let you do that. The Darth Vader outfit is copyrighted, and we don't want to get into a lawsuit with the owners of that copyright. Was that an ingenious response or what? Rostropovich, BSO guest conductor. No one could pronounce his first name, so the orchestra members simply called him Slava. He was most known as a world-famous solo cellist and performed frequently with the BSO, but he was also a fine conductor and in that capacity was invited to lead the orchestra on several occasions. His language was colorful, as you have already heard. At one rehearsal, he scolded the cellist, You sound like a bunch of cows. You go wah, wah, wah. The cellists were humiliated. Later, by way of apology, he invited the section, about ten cellists, to his dressing room after the rehearsal and poured them each a generous glass of his special vodka. All was forgiven, of course. The orchestra loved him. At a rehearsal of Brahms' variations on a theme of Haydn after a very sprightly variation, Number five, Slava stopped the orchestra. 
It should sound like bureau drawer falling out and all the insects run away. Al Schneider, BSO violinist. Al played in the second violin section and lived about eight miles south of us in the town of Natick, along with several other BSO members. Bill rode in a carpool that included Al and also Chuck Janchich, horn, Joe Silverstein, violinist, later concertmaster, and still later purchaser of our Tanglewood home after Bill retired from the VSO. Al had this quiet, understated sense of humor that Bill loved, one of those soft-spoken persons whom everyone stops to listen to because they're sure that what he is about to say will be memorable. The carpool trips were full of good humor and companionship and also many discussions about the orchestra and enemy number one, the conductor. Letters from Bill. On BSO tour of Russia, 1956, first American orchestra to tour the Soviet Union. And this is a quote from Bill's letter. I guess I never have liked playing the Star Spangled Banner, but tonight we started the program by playing the Russian national anthem, followed by a drum roll and the SSB. And I tell you this, in Kapuscinski's words, cellist and good friend, who felt as I did was the first real experience of the trip. Tears came to my eyes, and I'm sure to many others, somehow the two pieces together, after all the propaganda and hostility of former years, and here we are playing the two pieces together in friendship and comradeship, was too much. What a ridiculous world. Here was the real truth. But apparently life and occurrence are not based on reality, but hokum and distortion. No, not even that, but imagination and pure invention. This feeling cropped up at almost every turn. There were people friendly, sympathetic, and kind who would try to help when asked, and even when not asked, and showed a childlike affection and interest. How could it be that there is so much hostility, suspicion, and mistrust, especially on our side of the ocean? Or rather, why, why does it persist? European Tour Diary, August 25, 1956. Rather a routine day, starting at 9 a.m. with a train trip from Cork to Dublin, 160 miles. From the train, there was quite a bit of picture-taking of the Irish countryside as the sun was out in a typically clouded Irish sky. The train made the trip in three hours, at times reaching a speed of about 80 miles per hour, which didn't make picture-taking too easy. In my compartment, Jean Coape, violist, fell to telling Kusevitsky stories, one of which follows. 
present were Kadanoff, Morici, both violists, Freeman, double bass, Janchich, horn, and myself. One day while rehearsing for our first performance of some Copeland piece, Cousy stopped and made a correction in the third horn part. Apparently he didn't like the way the third horn player, a Mr. Ludwig, was phrasing a certain passage, and in typical Kusevitsky fashion, instructed Ludwig to play Deedledee and not Deedledee. The orchestra played through the section containing the third horn passage, and Kusi stopped again. Mr. Ludwig, why you play Deedledee? Play Deedledee once again. Same mistake in interpretation. Kusi, Ludwig. Deedledee, why you play that way? To which Ludwig answered, But I, Kusi, don't spick to me. It is not for you to me to spick. <laughs> Ludwig, but you asked, Kusi, get out, go. Rogers, Leslie Rogers was then personnel manager and was called whenever anyone was being fired, as very often happened in Kusevitsky tirades. But get out. And to this, Ludwig lost control of his temper and in French told Fusi, Oh, go fuck yourself. To this befoggled Kusevitsky indignantly answered, It's too late to apologize. Go. <laughs> and in the same letter concerning the same tour, Bill reports, All unusually dull. Monter's age seems to be showing through more and more. Richard Bergen, BSO Concertmaster, 1920-1962, tells the following incident. At the end of the concert, after our reading of the Rosen Cavalier Suite, which was unusually tired and spiritless, the audience gave us an unwarranted ovation with clapping and stamping, it was a surprise because the last number had been so reposeful. Nevertheless, Monter, in all seriousness and with a bit of elation and excitement in his voice, turned to Bergen and Alfred Cripps, assistant concertmaster, just after he had taken bow and said, We really raised the roof that time, didn't we? <laughs> Leonard Bernstein frequent BSO guest conductor. There are many stories about Leonard Bernstein. For all his brilliance as a composer, lecturer, and TV personality, he was, in the opinion of most of the orchestra musicians, a complete egotistical asshole. He wasted large quantities of time at rehearsals telling tales of his prowess and racking up overtime calculated in 15-minute segments, which the management had to pay large sums to cover. For example, if a rehearsal of the full orchestra went five minutes over time, management would have to pay a minimum 105, the number of members on salary, times the cost for a player on minimum salary for one segment of overtime. Then you'd have to calculate the amount that other players were paid. Each contract was negotiated separately with, say, Joe Silverstein, concertmaster, 
perhaps receiving the highest salary. James Stalliano, Jimmy, longtime BSO principal horn player, kept a tally of the number of times in a rehearsal Bernstein stopped the orchestra to make a correction. On one occasion, this number reached 203. Leonard had surgery at one point, for what we don't recall. At the first rehearsal following the surgery, Lenny spent 20 minutes talking about it. In contrast, Eugene Lehner, BSO violist, struggled to the rehearsal after a difficult operation and had to sit in pain listening to Lenny's monologue. Lenny had a personal business corporation, Amberson Inc., which owned, among other things, rights to West Side Story, its title, songs, etc. John Noonan, lawyer with the BSO, was negotiating with Amerson over some issue. He said, it's like making a snowball out of fog. <laughs> During the Tanglewood summers, the music shed was heavily populated by sparrows. For producing their progeny, they loved the intricate posts and beams that held up the roof. Almost every joint, and there were many, held a nest, which in turn held a maximum number of eggs first and later chicks, unmolested by any predators that might naturally have reduced their population. The problem was that they were very noisy, and flying over the audience occasionally deposited their excrement on the head or lap of some unsuspecting audience member. Management tried everything short of extermination to control their population. One summer, the shed was festooned inside and out with fake owls, but that didn't help. Just how they are handling this problem now, I don't know. There is a connection to Bernstein in this story. About his musicianship and general demeanor, Ralph Gomberg, BSO principal oboist, commented, the birds say it just right. Cheep, 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 cheep. The war between conductors and players. Question, what's the difference between a dead conductor and a dead skunk? Answer, skid marks beside the skunk. <laughs> Tours. On a tour to Japan, Jerome Patterson, Jerry, BSO cellist, and his wife, Carmen, were impressed with their very swank accommodations, including a refrigerator which was well stocked with small bottles of wine and liquor. They thought it was all free, so they emptied every bottle into the bathtub <laughs> and had an unusual bath. They were shocked when they received their hotel bill. Guest Conductors You may remember Sarah Caldwell. She came to Boston the same year Bill did, 1952, and was head of the Boston University Opera Workshop and later formed what became the Opera Company of Boston. Her career as a conductor and organizer of local productions of a string of well-known as well as unknown operas was stellar. Uh, 
She was the first woman to conduct the Metropolitan Opera. All her outstanding accomplishments, awards, and talents were tainted by an unwillingness to bathe and take care of her personal appearance. She was vastly overweight, but despite her aroma, no one could deny her tremendous abilities and contributions to the Boston music scene. At one point, she appeared with the Boston Symphony as a guest conductor, which led our ever-resourceful Matt Ruggiero to comment, Ah, just another pretty face. Elliot Carter, eminent American composer, had a strong connection with Boston because of his education at Harvard University and Longee School of Music in Cambridge. In 1961, at a rehearsal at Symphony Hall of his concerto for harpsichord and piano, Bill spotted a lady sitting in the first balcony. Among Bill's duties as personnel manager was the responsibility to keep strangers out of any rehearsals, those being private, in-house activities. Bill went up to where she was sitting and asked her very quietly, do you have any relationship with this rehearsal? She replied as indignantly as her soft voice would allow, No, I emphatically do not. To which Bill asked, Then I must ask you, what are you doing here? Again she responded indignantly, I'm waiting for my husband, Elliot Carter. So that was the end of that. Clearly, she was not too fond of the piece. Bob Levin. On Thursday, July 5, 2018, Bill and I joined Joan Nordell, fellow Newburyport resident, to go to Brandeis to hear our good friends Robert Levin, pianist, and Daniel Stepner, violinist and Brandeis faculty member, performed the three Brahms violin sonatas. Our travels to and from are not germane to my story, but briefly, we shared a ride on Uber, since Joan was confined to a wheelchair due to a broken ankle. That only added to the specialness of the occasion. After the concert, Bill and I went down to the backstage area to greet Dan and Baum, whom we hadn't seen for many years. After hugs, congratulations, etc., Bob said to Bill, Do you remember that time in Tanglewood when members of the BSO chamber players were rehearsing a work by Luciano Berrio? I was playing harpsichord, and you were turning pages for me. Seiji was conducted. He had all the cues in his score, but he wasn't giving them to the players. We came to a place where Dorio, principal flute, plays for several measures, and then Ralph, on oboe, comes in, followed several measures later, by Sherm, bassoon, and then me. Well, after Dorio had played her bit, Ralph had the cue from Dorio's part in his score, but he missed his entrance and didn't come in, and then there was utter chaos. No one knew what to do. 
I leaned over to you and said, Bill, I don't think I'm going to come in. You leaned back to me and said, Bob, I don't blame you. I wouldn't come in either. Well, undoubtedly the rehearsal ground to a halt. Bill didn't remember the story, but that's the kind of gentle humor Bill loves. Hugh Ross. Among the guest conductors who have led the Boston Symphony was Hugh Ross, noted choral conductor, leader of the world-famous Schola Cantorum of New York and chorus master at Tanglewood between 1942 and 1963. He was a very proper Brit. On the occasion when he guest conducted the BSO, they were performing a complicated piece by Leos Janacek at Jordan Hall. I was there. In a particularly difficult passage, Dr. Ross dropped his baton. He reached to retrieve it from the podium, but only succeeded in knocking it off the podium and onto the floor. He got off the podium to retrieve it from the floor and succeeded only in pushing it farther away. Of course, by then, the orchestra had stopped playing. Someone in the cello section retrieved it, handed it to Dr. Ross, and the concert proceeded. I don't remember what happened after that. No doubt he turned to the audience with apologies and facing the orchestra once again asked to proceed. From letter L, please. Bruno Moderna, Italian conductor, guest conducted the Boston Symphony on at least one occasion. On this occasion, he was frustrated by the out-of-tuneness of the orchestra. He stopped the rehearsal and asked for an A, which traditionally has been given by the first oboe, but for many years now has been sounded by a recorded and indisputable tone. The orchestra all played their A's, A442s that is, and Madeira stopped again saying, no, no, I love your A and yours and yours also, pointing indiscriminately to various players in the orchestra, but gentlemen, we must agree on just one. Contract negotiations. Every three years, the orchestra members and management and their lawyers go through the painful exercise of renegotiating the trade agreement. Bill enjoyed an interesting position in these procedures. He was a member of the management team, but also, being very close to the orchestra, had their needs close to his heart. He was also the sounding board for a good amount of kvetching. Bill worked closely with Tom Morris, who served in various capacities with the BSO from 1969, becoming general manager in 1978. He and Bill both had great senses of humor and a general feeling of camaraderie and goodwill permeated most of the orchestra at that time. This good humor even invaded the austere and sometimes troublesome trade agreement negotiations. 
For example, during one pop season, Fiedler, Arthur Fiedler, conductor of the Boston Pops, programmed a work that required the wind players to play not only their own instruments, but also a toy instrument. At one point in the music, they were to squeeze rubber duckies to produce an effect desired by the composer. Toys are used in Haydn's so-called toy symphony, and that has resulted in toys being acceptable on occasion as orchestral instruments. There was a good deal of discussion about whether these musicians should receive an additional fee, a so-called doubling fee, when one is required to perform on more than one instrument and how much that fee should be. The clause in the contract addressing that issue, the rubber ducky clause, was a source of future amusement. <laughs> Michael Tilson Thomas, BSO Principal Guest Conductor, Michael, now music director of the San Francisco Symphony, was assistant conductor of the BSO when Bill was personnel manager. He hosted and conducted a series of casual concerts he called Spectrum Concerts. Michael loved to talk to the audience beforehand about the works to be performed and the composers who wrote them. He would sit on the edge of the stage while delivering his often long-winded speeches, what I'm sure he hoped would produce casual and intimate atmosphere, turned out to be pompous and condescending. Once he was so long-winded that Henry Cabot, then chairman of the Board of Trustees, called out from the audience, Oh, shut up! Jordan M. Whitelaw, sound engineer for the BSO and no friend of MTT, was recording the event and caught the whole thing on tape. He was in ecstasy. And then there was Einar Hansen, BSO first violinist, who came from Denmark. He was a delightful fellow, small but nimble. He had a phenomenal ability, not just on the violin, but also as a gymnast, a gymnast with one trick. He could run up the side of a wall or a building and return to earth, landing squarely on his two feet, much to the amazement of the other musicians or anyone else who happened to be watching. He was frequently asked to show off this ability especially when the orchestra was on tour, but he performed his trick only occasionally, which made it all the more special. Thomas Tommy Thompson, or Dad Thompson to the orchestra members, was a phenomenal musician. He was cymbal player with the BSO, though as a member of the percussion section, he, as most other percussionists, knew how to play a myriad of percussion instruments, tuned and untuned, mallet or hand-struck, and timpani. Because of the versatility required of percussionists, they are among the highest paid members of the orchestra. Each one has a specialty, and Dad's was cymbals. He owned an enviable collection of Zildjian cymbals, which he bequeathed to the Boston Symphony at the time of his death. 
Not only was the sound he produced singularly beautiful and always appropriate to the music, but also he had an uncanny sense of precisely where the beat was, where the ictus of the beat was. So there was always an excitement when Tommy raised his cymbals to play. Everyone loved the nickel penny man, but he had one problem. That was alcohol. He sometimes came to rehearsals or concerts so stoned that he couldn't stand. Tom Gager, who played next to Tommy, would let him sleep, and several bars before he was to play would rouse him, stand him up, hold him up, and tell him exactly when to play. <laughs> Once Tom Gager was telling Dad Thompson with some pride about his girls, twins then about five or six years old, and how they were already so pretty he would have to get a ladder to accommodate all the boys who would no doubt come to visit later on. Dad commented in his droll way, man, you better get an escalator. <laughs> Retirement. Retirement offers a whole dynamic within the Boston Symphony Orchestra. One of the issues is what to do with the instrument you no longer need for earning a living. In Bill's case, he gave his trombone to L'Orchestre Symphonique, the Holy Trinity Orchestra of Port-au-Prince, Haiti. It is now buried under the rubble from the earthquake of January 2011 and hasn't been seen since along with Ann Hobson Pilot's harp. She was, for 40 years, BSO harpist, 20 of those as principal harpist. When Raymond Allard, principal of Assunist, retired in 1953, he bragged that he had made a standing lamp out of his instrument. <laughs> Conductors. There were many stories about Serge Kusevitsky, BSO Music Director, 1924 to 1949, the conductor who was just leaving the orchestra as Bill was coming in. He was acclaimed as a champion of contemporary music and was best known and probably most credited with the works he and the orchestra commissioned. One of the most famous was Bela Bartok's Concerto for Orchestra, which is still widely performed. During a rehearsal for the premiere, which took place in Boston on December 1, 1944, Bartok was sitting in the first balcony. He stopped Kusevitsky every few bars. Kusevitsky finally called an intermission. After the intermission, Kusi, as the orchestra called him, explained, Mr. Bartok and I have had a talk. And Mr. Bartok says, everything is going beautifully. Bartok was no longer in the balcony. <clears throat> when Eric Leinsdorf, BSO Music Director 1962 to 1969, was about to retire, the orchestra members took a vote whether to buy him a farewell present. The first vote was negative, <laughs> so a re-vote was taken, which was worse. Matt Ruggiero was overheard to say upon leaving the meeting, and furthermore, we're taking away his 
parking privileges. <laughs> At a cello audition during Leinsdorf's tenure, cellist Bill Stoking impressed the committee so much with his playing of a cello excerpt from Strauss's Ein Heldenleben that they broke into applause. Leinsdorf, for whatever reason, said, Now, Mr. Stoking, can you play it upside down? And so Bill Stoking, much to everyone's amazement, did just that. Stoking, incidentally, went on to become principal cellist in the Cleveland Symphony Orchestra. There are many other stories about Eric Leinsdorf. He was Mr. Meticulous, exacting in his gestures, his speech, his instructions to the musicians, and particularly to the library, where Bill worked for two years. Every nuance in the music was notated, and it was the library's responsibility to mark every part. There are 30 violinists, hence about 15 parts had to be marked individually, sometimes with such details as changing an eighth rest to a tied-over 16th note plus a 16th rest. This often involved erasing the instructions from some previous conductor. The task of the librarians, there were three of them, during Leinsdorf's tenure was onerous and time-consuming and resulted in a good deal of gnashing of teeth on the part of those who had to carry out his exacting instructions. The story is told that he had peevishly detailed in his instructions about marking the parts for Mozart's Serenade No. 4 in D major, Kerschel 203. The librarians dutifully made the edits to all the orchestra parts. At the end of the performance of that work, Leinsdorf was heard to remark, and that finishes K203. Charles Munch was quite the opposite made few changes in the score or parts, and generally instructed, just watch me. It was Leinsdorf who instituted the practice of providing every musician with booties during recording sessions in order to minimize noise. Leinsdorf was not popular with many musicians. At one point, realizing his popularity with the musicians was waning, he decided to invite every musician to have lunch with him, the better to know the musicians. At each lunch event, he invited seven musicians. In true Leinsdorf fashion, he invited them, but in alphabetical order. When the musicians realized what he was doing, the whole project came to a fizzling halt. Esplanade Concerts and then there was the canine fan of the Esplanade performances held every summer who always barked when the Star Spangled Banner was played. And that piece, of course, opened every Esplanade concert. A word about the orchestra. The Esplanade Orchestra was made up of freelance players hired for these concerts held in Boston during the summer when the regular members of the Boston Symphony Orchestra were at Tanglewood. Absentees. Orchestra members had many excuses for missing rehearsals or concerts. 
Wind players rarely missed, since their parts were often very exposed. They often played alone. The string players were a different story, however, since in most cases other instrumentalists were playing the identical notes. Typically, the violinists were divided into about 12 first violins and 12 seconds, 10 to 12 violists playing the same parts, 10 cellists, and 8 to 10 double bassists. Not that their participation wasn't appreciated, but certainly the individual responsibility was not so great among string players as it was among wind and brass. Bill collected the various reasons given for a player to be absent, but the most inventive of all was when Louis Leguia, BSO cellist, called in sick to say he would not be at the rehearsal because an earwig had climbed into his ear and he had to go to the doctor to have it removed. <laughs> Bill never questioned the veracity of the excuses, but certainly that one stretched the imagination. That earwig crawl into humans' ears is little more than folklore, but makes a great story. <clears throat> Members' Instruments Many of the instruments of the VSO musicians are very valuable, and the total investment and value must be in the millions. For many string players, the value of their instruments exceeds the value of their houses. Robert Bob Carroll, BSO violist, was preparing for a performance with the orchestra of Harold in Italy by Hector Berlioz, one of the big viola solos in the repertoire. Quite an honor for Bob. He wanted to upgrade his instrument in preparation for this event. He was currently playing an instrument for which he had paid only $800. Bob was quite methodical about finding a replacement instrument. He had on loan three instruments of varying values from various dealers, including probably one from William Mendig, violin dealer in Philadelphia. Bob was from Pennsylvania. He arranged for the BSO to, quote, audition, end quote, these instruments on the stage of Symphony Hall before a group of his string playing and other friends, including Bill, who, as you know, was not a string player, but a trombone player, nonetheless a discerning and sensitive musician and one of Bob's best friends. On the appointed day, they gathered at Symphony Hall to hear Bob play the various violins to determine which produced the best sound. The audience was unable to see Bob and so could not identify by sight which instrument he was playing at the time. They each had a pad of paper on which to write their assessments of violins one, two, three, and four. He included, of course, the instrument he currently used. He played unaccompanied from the standard solo viola repertoire, including Harold in Italy, some loud passages, some soft, some very fast, very slow, very high, very low, etc., etc. Those attending were very serious about this singular experience, most having never sat in on an instrument audition 
and gave their best assessment of the instruments they heard. Well, after a couple of hours of this, the results were tallied, and would you believe his current, some would say cheap, viola was the winner. Just which viola he played in the concert, I'm not sure. He may have opted for one with a better pedigree simply because it would look better in the program notes. Or perhaps he played his tried and true instrument without announcing its credentials. Written October 2019.